0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to all of our listeners in this episode of The Zeitgeist. We are recording on January 28th, 2022 And we are in the midst of uh, what I think is uh, a a Russian uh, political and diplomatic and potentially military assault on the post-Cold War uh, order in Europe. Um, Moscow is seeking, uh, if you take their written proposals seriously, a rollback, not only of the architecture that was created in 1989 through 91, at at the end of the Cold War, but in some ways even to unravel elements of the Helsinki Final Act of 1975 that really set the stage for um, not only detente in Europe, but uh, but also the future um, uh, and the end of the Cold War. Um, It would be a return in many ways to a Yalta Europe. So we have as our guest today, a person who knows more than almost anyone um, about how this current order came about um, someone who was involved for nearly fifty years in transatlantic security, Ambassador John Cornblum, Ambassador Cornblum, so, Ambassador of the United States to Germany, but before that held a number of senior positions in Washington. Um, uh, John, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining.
1: Happy to be here.
0: And um, as it so happens, uh, John Kornblum is also an AICG, AICGS trustee of which we're very proud. Um, and so part of our mission here is to try to deepen understanding of the strategic aspects that are at the heart of the U.S.-German relationship. And so I want to start today with maybe a little bit of understanding of what exactly it is uh, that Vladimir Putin is trying to roll back um, and what that would mean. So, you know, the Cold War confrontation between the U.S. and Soviet Union, um, I, I, you know, you, I saw you describe it once as... Um, that it held in check the, the, the kind of combustible rivalries in Europe, um, how, how did the United States look at this situation in 1989 to 91 um, as that reality crumbled and a new one had
1: to replace it? Well, I'm gonna take one step backwards, a fairly large one and go back 40 years from 1989 to 1949 when NATO was founded. This is an important date because it represented the first permanent commitment of the United States abroad, the first commitment of the United States to a a political uh, organization uh, outside of our shores. You might say the UN was, but I'm talking about a specific one. And also the first time that we had actually guaranteed the security of anybody else. So it was a very big thing. And then for those who have read a little bit of history, you know that there were major battles which went on in Washington between 1945 and 1950 over exactly what this world was that we were creating. The reason I mention it because although there were differences of points of view, there was one thing that everyone seemed to agree to at that time. And that was our goal was to return Europe to its quote, normal place, earned place as one of the major forces in the world but to suppress the aggressive, maybe even warlike tendencies in Europe through first an American presence, but also through multilateral cooperation. So this was the beginning of the, war, the, the era of multilateral cooperation. So when we looked at the world in 1989, through really through 2000, that was a period of a decade in which this system that we have now was built. I can tell you as somebody who was there that we looked at a system which would help Europe rebuild to the point where it was an equal, independent, and influential partner. And uh, there's lots of things we can go into the details. The, The structures were carefully thought through. We achieved all of them and actually held for quite a long time. They're still holding in many ways. But the important point here is that the American approach to Europe has always been a dynamic one and as we went into the 1990s our goal really was to set up a system where europe would then gradually become a equal some sort of independent supportive power in the atlantic world
0: and you know i think some people try to characterize the us approach to uh, to europe as as being essentially an ideological and an idealistic one but i think what one one of the things you're saying john is that it was actually an, uh, you know a, a deeply realistic uh, one how to suppress volatility uh, in Europe and create a system
1: um, that would allow um, development. It was deeply realistic. And the ideology came later, of course. When all this happened, there wasn't really yet anything called the Cold War. There was a Soviet threat because they had demonstrated it through the Berlin blockade, through Greece, through other things, through the uh, forced communization of much of Eastern Europe. So, uh, but there was very little ideology into it other than the basic American feeling for freedom and democracy. There was no real ideology. The ideology came really after the Korean War and the Korean War changed things rather fundamentally. That's a fact that's not really um, considered in the dialogue very much, but the Korean War moved us from a, shall we say, a dynamic Europe building strategy to a very clear black white strategy. Here, we are the good guys. There's the Russians, they're the bad guys. And uh, there was a, uh, a, a policy paper uh, written uh, uh, in 1950, which basically defined um, sort of a, a, a regime-changing strategy. Our goal was to defeat communism. That wasn't our goal two or three years earlier, but the Korean War really made a very big difference in that. Yeah. And and that that regime change strategy lasted until 1989, when we actually changed the regime. And and then we get into a different era. But for a long time, we really were in a sort of a major confrontational strategy. So let's fast forward then
0: to um, the the late 1980s, as <clears throat> uh, as the Warsaw Pact and the communist world uh, started to collapse, not only under pressure from outside, but, you know, more fundamentally yeah. own internal. Internal, um, internal weaknesses and the demands of, uh, of, of the peoples of those countries. Um, the, the task that I think everyone is aware of today um, was the how to deal with Russia, because we're still dealing with Russia. Um, but that wasn't the only task. Uh, at the time. I mean, there was also this vast expanse between West Germany um, and Russia or the Soviet Union um, that also had its own aspirations, animosities, and desires. So how did you and your diplomatic colleagues uh, in in Washington and in the West approach that? Was it a question first and foremost of how to deal with Russia or more complicated?
1: It was a bit more complicated than that. The the, the the first goal, well, the very first goal was one that was very similar to the one after World War II, and that was to deal with human needs. Um, this, this, the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet bloc, had been surviving on its own for 45 years, but once the discipline of communism was uh, removed, there wasn't really any clear understanding of what was going on. And one of the chapters, which I wish was being more uh, stressed at the moment was the fact that literally hundreds, if not thousands, I don't know the exact number of Americans, Germans, French, British went to Russia to help them rebuild. And there was an office of the coordinator of Russian aid or something like that in the State Department. We spent hundreds of millions, probably billions helping to rebuild the russian infrastructure the russian economy uh, and this went on from 1990 maybe into the mid-1990s i don't know when that office closed down but it was probably in the mid-1990s and i have a very good friend here in berlin who had some connections in the medical field and he said something to me once which rings true today He helped build a children's clinic in Moscow with the most modern Western equipment. And he went there for a dedication and the chief, the chef arts, as they would say, of the place gave a nice little speech. But then this chef arts, who was a woman, came to him afterwards and said, you know what? We're very grateful for you doing this, but we're hating, we hate you for having made us do it. And this is maybe the kind of feelings we're getting out of Putin right now. I'll never forget that example he gave us because this is a time when the West was just pouring Russia with aid and pouring Russia with well-meaning people. I had a friend in Brussels who was from, you know, I don't know, Nebraska, Iowa, someplace, had never even been to Europe. And he just said, these Russian people need help. And he went there. Yeah. And so that's part of it. The second part of it was, of course, the geopolitical. And we had a pretty clear plan and we had worked out which in fact we did carry out. But I think it, uh, another very important point is the London summit of 1990, which was the first post-Cold War NATO summit. We issued a very long de- declaration, much of which I had written myself. And, and what, did, what did it say? First it said, Russia and Warsaw Pact countries are no longer our enemies, we are friends. Secondly, it said, we want to help you to build up your, your countries, your economy and your political system. And thirdly, it said, we will work out any arrangements which you feel are necessary or are useful to maintain your security. There was not one word mentioned of NATO enlargement there. We weren't thinking of it then, others were by the way, but we weren't at that time, those of us on the ground. And it was really a very outstretched hand to Russia and the Warsaw Pact countries. We know now that the Warsaw Pact countries were at the same time lobbying already with uh, American congressmen and even at the White House for uh, a, a, an accelerated expansion of NATO, but that was not the policy of NATO at that point and not the image that we projected in 1990. So anybody who's talking about um, how we had to promise them we weren't going to enlarge and everything, I don't think it happened, but the fact is it wasn't even an issue. It wasn't even important. Our goal was to help Russia become a modern democratic country.
0: And, and what emerged um, throughout the early 90s, mm-hmm. the middle of the 90s, was sort of three separate approaches that were, but that were related to each other. One was uh, NATO, first NATO's partnership for peace, which then um, uh, led to the first round uh, of enlargement with Uh, with Hungary, uh, Poland, and the Czech Republic joining uh, in, um, well, offered in 1997, joining in 1999. And also the enlargement of the European Union, which took a little bit longer to happen, but uh, also moved roughly in in parallel. And the creation of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe um, as uh, an organization to bring together all European countries, um, including Russia, and also the former Soviet uh, uh, republics. Uh, so how did, how did you and your colleagues see that solution um, and its durability? Um, did, did you think this would, this would solve uh, Europe's problems for, for all time?
1: No, we didn't, I didn't anyway. And I think most of the people who I worked with, including I think President Clinton, didn't see it that way but we saw the importance of maintaining stability. And, and this had become part of our own approach, even though, as I said earlier, it hadn't been part of the first American approach. We believed that there should be multilateral institutions which guaranteed this stability. In other words, one of the important parts of the post-Cold War settlement, which took place in the 1990s, was the United States signing on really totally to multilateralism, which had never really been in our tradition before. And so we we believe we set up a structure and we worked hard and we achieved it, which included, as you just put it, uh, NATO, the European Union, and the OSCE. It was called CSE, then we actually changed the name as part of the, the strategy. And this was supposed to be sort of in steps. There was the basic military security of NATO allies. There was the broader economic, social, political support and integration given through the European Union. And there was the pan-European, if you wish to call it that, security structure where everybody could be a member and where everybody could talk about exactly the issues that Putin is now upset about. And so, and, and that structure held really for about 20 years without too much difficulty. Uh, and it was meant, in fact, to give Russia a stake in this system. And I should add here, also, of course, you know, there was one of our one of the parts of the structure was the the NATO-Russia Council, and there, as I think I've mentioned to you before, I feel that we probably misjudged the importance of the NATO-Russia Council, and the NATO NATO allies didn't treat it as we, who had set it up, thought it should be treated. We wanted it to be almost a parallel North Atlantic Council with all the staffing, all the ideas, all the goals. And instead it became the Russian ambassador being grilled, if I can use that word, the Russian ambassador being grilled by the NATO allies. Russia in the dock. Yeah. So actually, I think this is a great
0: point to, to, to move, shift in that direction because um, you, know, you and I have had uh, been in touch uh, offline, as they say, um, and I, uh, we were discussing an article that appeared by, uh, authored by Angela Stent, um, well-known uh, observer of Russia and, uh, and Germany and, uh, and US foreign policy. And one of her central arguments, uh, you can read this in Foreign Affairs, uh, is that the United States, uh, along with its European allies, um, designed this security architecture you just described um, And her assertion is that Russia did not have a clear commitment or a stake um, in that structure. Um, And of course, what that suggests now is that if Russia doesn't feel it has a stake um, in those institutions, then it feels relatively little compunction about uh, trying to to tear them down um, and and replace them with something else. But do do you share that view that Russia didn't have a stake or maybe currently today does not feel it has a stake in those uh, institutions?
1: I would say that we probably misjudged what was necessary to give Russia a stake. We've certainly thought that this structure that we were building would give them a stake, but I mentioned already the nato Russia Council. Um, One of the things that the Russians tried to um, sell, shall we say, in those years was the CIS, the uh the council of independent states and the problem was nobody wanted to join and this is what we i think probably misjudged i did anyway was the importance to the russia the russians of its neighboring states not becoming western democracies because that's what's happened and i don't think this is putin i don't think this is anybody in particular i think this is part of Russian psychology, I may be right or wrong. But the fact is that it is true. We started surrounding them with Western democracies. And of course, Ukraine is the biggest example right now. But the Baltic states, for example, Georgia, uh, uh, Armenia to a certain extent, uh, although it's fallen backwards a bit. And so they they were starting to get very worried in a way that probably if you're not Russian, you don't really understand why they were worried, but they were worried that there was something called West, the West who was surrounding them. I, and I think we, I can say that I'm speaking only for myself. I think that I didn't understand that at that point, that that would be a problem. Our goal was of course to we say, flood the zone with Western democracies. And so far we've succeeded quite well, but we didn't, I think, realize what a major uh, threat that would seem to be to Russians. And then if you come with a leader like Putin, who is not only Russian, but he is a special kind of Russian, growing up in the KGB, he doesn't trust anybody. He wants control. He doesn't trust the West at all. So if you take those two things together, that's probably a pretty powerful mixture. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that is, is sometimes a bit frustrating in the, in the foreign policy discourse, uh, especially in the current crisis, is that it, uh, it presupposes that there was a, an American and a Western drive to expand institutions um, almost against the will or that uh, the, the, the countries um, that joined NATO and the European Union were ambivalent about it. And at least in my own experience, uh, it was quite the opposite. I mean, the the right. United States was reacting to demands that we hadn't really anticipated uh, that came faster than we were prepared for uh, from countries that wanted to join NATO, that wanted to join, to join the European Union, that were looking for some kind of, of new um, structure in which they could integrate themselves that would guarantee their own prosperity and security. Um, and I think Ukraine is, uh, is not the only example of it, it's just the current one. Um, you know, so Russia is trying to coerce uh, Ukraine to, to give up on what has been a pretty consistent set of priorities, um, uh, even if you leave aside NATO, if you look at the European Union and integration with, uh, with, uh, with the European economy um, for decades. Um, so uh, do, do you think Russia will be able to achieve this through coercion? Um, and how, what should the United States and its partners be doing against it?
1: Well, I don't think they'll be able to achieve it through coercion, but they might cause lots of disruption and even confrontation in the meantime. Uh, As we say all the time, but unfortunately never quite put it together, the world is changing dramatically. And the real implications for Russia of Putin's behavior aren't even a war, although how, how horrible that would be and all of the Russian young men who are sitting out in the cold right now, waiting to see whether they're gonna get shot at. I mean, it's a terrible situation for them too. But the real implications are going to be, does Russia have a chance of integrating into the modern digital global world or not? And the answer right now is no. And if he were to go carry out his threats and uh, start some kind of war with this, their chances of integrating would be even less. So I think that we've we've gone beyond the goals and the emotions of the nineteen nineties. That's after all almost thirty years ago or something. and we're in now to a whole different world where terms such as global supply chains and social media are more important than geopolitical balance or or, or who's got the most troops or whatever. But at the same time a country such as Russia can can uh disrupt, can maintain a defense establishment, and does have, after all, several thousand nuclear weapons at its disposal. So it has to be taken seriously as a very uh, important, but also perhaps difficult member of the the international community. But at the same time, all of the things which we are debating with China, going up to artificial intelligence and quantum computing and all that, Russia has absolutely no role in this de- development at all, and so uh, so what Putin is playing here is a a losing strategy for Russia. I don't think that they will be surrounded by Russian satraps at all, but the process of getting there because of him could be very difficult
0: mm-hmm. um you know, in, in some ways, Russia is trying to use the, the tools or the solutions of the mid 20th century, Yalta, or the 19th century, um, the, the kind of concert of powers um, to, <clears throat> I think this is another point that Angela Stent makes in her article, uh, to, and, and to apply them to the modern world. Right. And Putin's calculation seems to be that, that those, those solutions, those instruments um, still work. Um, and, uh, and your argument is uh, they won't. Um, that also presupposes that the United States and the G7 and the, the Europeans are going to be prepared, uh, if necessary, to impose really significant costs. How confident are you that, uh, that Germany, for example, um is going to carry through on those kinds of commitments. So you know, these days in Washington there's plenty of speculation and hand-wringing about whether Germany is as committed as, you know, the Biden administration would like them to be to these goals.
1: Right. Well, this is the one of the main questions which has come up many times over the past 30 or 40 years. And that is where is German psychology in this post-war, now I mean post-1945, but also post-Cold War world, uh, are they a country which wishes there to be a dynamic development in Europe, including with Russia? Or are they a country which uh, believes in stability, as people say? I tend to be on the stability side. I've lived and worked, I've done, I've had more roles in Germany than almost anybody can imagine, from diplomat to member of company boards, to working in companies, to being a member of a German family, et cetera, et cetera, I have gone from start to finish. And I think that the major emotion in Germany remains stability. And so they are Germany is a country which does not like to take risks. It's a country which uh, feels very uncomfortable if other people take risks. That's part of the reason that there's sometimes a debate with the United States. It's a country which believes that uh, the tried and true methods of stability are those which should be maintained. And here you see this most clearly in the Euro debate. It has nothing to do with the United States. The Euro debate is really beca- between countries who pay their bills and show up early in the morning and work and the German picture of countries who retire at 50 and uh, sit around and drink coffee all day and don't do anything. That's, that's not a very overdone stereotype. And so the, the whole future of Europe really depends not on, on how Germany adjusts to these changes. And as we can see in the half a dozen, shall we say major issues we could discuss, Germany has in fact um, not been very much in line with its European partners for some time. And this Russia threat, the, the Putin strategy of course is the most dramatic. But it's only one of, of many which are on the table right now.
0: Mm-hmm. John, what's your view? You know, there there are various proposals that people have uh, have floated, mm-hmm. pulled out of the uh, mothballs um, uh, over the last few months as the crisis driven by Russia has uh, has sharpened. And one of those is that Ukraine should somehow decide or be forced. Uh, Become a neutral um, uh, country. Um, you know, people. I think sometimes look at, like to look at their risk game board or their chess board, and and sort of assume that we could magically um, turn turn uh, one country or another into a different uh, different thing than it is. But can we treat Ukraine uh, that way? Is that a, is that actually a feasible uh, idea to be talking about, which we hear from from a number of of, uh, of uh, foreign policy analysts these days to make Ukraine accept neutrality?
1: Well, no, it's not a feasible approach because the Ukrainians don't want it. And and uh, this is not simply a question of taking a public opinion poll in Ukraine and asking them, where do you want to be? This is a question of the dynamics of the country. And the the, the role of Ukraine is often compared with the classic neutrals, if I may use that terms in Europe, in particular, Austria, Finland, and Sweden, who didn't join NATO as as, uh, uh, Norway and Denmark did, for example. Mm -hmm. But this had a lot to do with the history and psychology of these countries. And for Austria, uh, they felt it was necessary not just to be Separate from the Soviet Union, but also to define themselves differently than Germany, and, and frankly, an and, occupied country. And they were an occupied country. Now you can say, well, this, the Ukrainians should have understood the Austrian logic, and said that it's too much for the Soviets to bear for them to join NATO, and it would to be too much for the Ukrainians to bear to join NATO. Now maybe some learned, you know, foreign policy council might agree on such a thing but the fact is the, European, the, the Ukrainian people did not. And I and I have to have full disclosure here. Uh, my dear wife is the daughter of Ukrainian refugees from World War II, <clears throat> and she is very committed to Ukraine, uh, to say this quite openly. But the fact is that if you look at how Ukraine itself, without any American influence or any German influence or Western European influence has behaved. First place, when independence breaking away from the Soviet Union came up, they had a poll of the country. And I don't know what the exact results were, but most of the country was 90% or more and even the heavily Russian places like Yalta or like Crimea or in the Eastern were clear majorities. President George H.W. Bush went to Kiev in, I think, 1991, and gave what has become known as the chicken Kiev speech. Right. He sort of warned them from independence. This was a geopolitical thinker thinking. And he said, this isn't right. You know, Russia, they're not gonna like it and everything, so just don't become independent. Well, he was met then with a 90% approval of becoming independent. Um, Ukraine, then in 1994, gave up all of its nuclear weapons, which it could have kept. If they had them now, they'd be in a whole much better situation, I'm sorry to say. But they felt that this was part of the price they would pay for getting along with Russia and getting along with the world. And as you know, as part of the deal for them to give up those weapons, we and four countries signed a statement guaranteeing their sovereignty and independence, including Russia. Right. And then one last point, the thing that set off this current phase of confrontation was not anything the United States did or Germany did. It was a really relatively unimportant economic uh, protocol between Ukraine and the European Union. I say relatively unimportant because it wasn't some great big trade deal. But what it did was a clear sign of Ukraine's commitment to the European Union to becoming Western Europe. And that is something that you simply can't change. I mean, you can have all the working groups and uh, councils and everybody propose all these solutions for Europe. A lot of well-known Americans have done that also. But the fact is, the Ukrainians wouldn't accept it. So what are we supposed to do? Tell them, no, we're sorry. Well, maybe you'd rather like being in the West, but. We wouldn't mind having you, actually, but we can't take you because the Russians wouldn't like it. We're not going to do anything like that. Last question,
0: John, and that is, um, you know, certainly throughout the Cold War period and in the post-Cold War period that we've been talking about today, the United States' role was crucial, Um, and the United States was an ordering and structuring um, power. And um, is the U.S. still essential? European stability in your view?
1: Oh yes, I mean, we're the, we're the fulcrum of European stability. And here I have to go back to my own experience in the, you can look it up as they say, um, in the spring 1995 issue of Foreign Affairs, uh, Richard Holbrooke had an article which I had worked on a lot, shall we say, called the United States, a European power. And this was the foundation of our strategy, because it was it was a, it was an article really not aimed at Europeans at all but at, at Americans and what it describes is why the United States is necessary for this this situation that you're talking about the, the balance and for and also for progress in Europe, and why it was in American interest to do so and uh, Angela Merkel had a had a uh, a formula which she put forward, which I think is really clever, if I may say so. She said, um, America is the Germany of Europe. Germany is the America of Europe. And what she meant by that, of course, is America is the fulcrum, the power giver, the stability giver of Europe. It will stay that way. It's gonna stay that way basically forever. But Germany is the impulse of Europe, and that's true. And this is, I'd like to make one final point. There's lots of talk running around about how Germany should be leading and Germany should be doing this or that. Well, Germany has been leading for 60 years. The Europe that we now see is one basically based on German concepts and German uh, interests and German will. And it's going to continue that way. Only it's a different kind of leadership than say the French would like to have or the British or the Americans. It's not a high profile run out there and shoot the bad guys kind of strategy. It's a strategy from within. The Euro has was designed by Germans. It was designed by Jürgen Stark and the German foreign ministry, uh, finance ministry. It's been implemented by Germans. It's, 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 it's in many ways the D mark in disguise. Uh, German, European energy policy, which I don't consider to be terribly successful, by the way, was simply Directed by Germans. Angela Merkel made a statement which changed, Europe, changed Europe's uh, energy mix. Well, the fact is, and you could give it many other refugee policy, Angela Merkel said, we're going to do it. Uh, Germany has, in fact, been leading Europe very clearly and very, shall we say, decisively for probably 60 years and more, ever since it joined NATO and joined the European Union. And um, that's the way it's going to be. And so and Germany is going to continue to be in a way the main impulse of what's going on, however things happen, however mad people are about them. But the fact is that they are marching to their own drummer, which is not necessarily one attuned to the American consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that brings us um, from where we started in 1949 uh, to the current day, John. And I wanna thank you for, for your insights on how we got to where we are, what the crucial issues um, are that uh, that the United States, Germany, and Europe uh, have to confront, and and what the um, what the stakes um, are uh, for for Europe and uh, the uh, Atlantic community. So, thank you for being our guest on this episode of. My Zeitgeist. Great pleasure. And uh, and to all of our listeners out there, thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Thanks for listening to the Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.